Hi, and welcome to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Cody Keenan, the author of Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. This is his first book. He's the former White House chief speechwriter for President Obama and is now a professor at Northwestern University. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Hey, Evan. Nice to be with you. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. How many speeches can you say you remember where you were when you heard it? I remember where I was when I heard President Obama's Amazing Grace speech. I was at my desk at work as a news reporter, and I remember being in awe as the president fell silent for what felt like an eternity and then began singing the hymn that I've heard on so many somber occasions. I immediately knew that I would remember this speech forever. Cody Keenan, you wrote the 40-minute speech along with President Obama, which you make clear in the book. He gets plenty of credit for it. But um, you described the countless hours that you spent working on it day and night for several days and nights. First of all, what is it like when the president of the United States is depending on a talented but ordinary man for something so important? Well, to really underscore you said, he deserves most of the credit for it, um, for real. And, and, and you know, when the National Archives uh, are put in the library, people will be able to look and see what he wrote on that speech longhand. Um, he's always our chief speechwriter, you know, so it was I always describe writing for him as a wonderful struggle. Um, you know, you, the struggle part is is you wanted to you don't want to let him down. You know, part of our collaboration was giving him a draft that he could play with and work with. Um, but we'd always aim a little bit higher than that. And then the great part is, you know, we knew that he would be there to take it to a higher place if we couldn't. So it's a lot of pressure. Um, but, but the, you, you kind of internalize it all. And then it's all released once you hand him a draft and you just sort of wait for his feedback on it. You remember where you were when you heard about the racially motivated shooting of nine parishioners, uh, members of a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, um, I actually do not remember where I was when the news started dribbling out about that, um, but you certainly do. Um, as the facts about who that killer was and what motivated him came into focus, how did your job as chief White House speechwriter for the first black president become more urgent? Because as you say, that was a very relevant aspect of how you tried to craft the words that he would later say. Yeah, you know the the early hours after a mass shooter are always kind of a fog of uh, information and misinformation. Um, yeah, I, I just remember I was sitting with my wife on the couch. We were watching a Cubs game. It was it was late at night on a Wednesday. Uh, you know, just a totally normal day, so you're not expecting anything like this. And we always had somebody in the White House who would blast around breaking news just to make sure everybody saw it. So Meaning that's, over email, right? Yeah, over email. <clears throat> um, so that's that's how I remember where I was. But you know, you pretty quickly piece together uh even though we didn't know about the killer's background until the next day or two um you know a, a white shooter going into a black church and murdering nine people is it's pretty unlikely that that's just a coincidence um so your you know speechwriter brain sort of kicks into action all right the president's gonna have to say something tomorrow he'll have to give some sort of statement because it's it's just part of the job um 
but you'd figure out, you know, how bad is this really? So I kind of just went to bed knowing that I'd have to go in earlier than usual. And I got a briefing from our uh, Homeland Security Advisor, Lisa Monaco, who knew a little bit more than the press did at that point. Um, things that the killer had said in 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 the church because he'd left a victim alive to, quote unquote, tell his story. And, you know, once once um, police caught up to him later that day and FBI went and interviewed him there, you start to learn that, you know, this guy self-radicalized on the Internet into a white supremacist and uh, was obsessed with Confederate iconography. So and, and admitted he wanted to start a race war. So at that point, it's real. And then, you know, to get back to your question, you're thinking about what does the first black president have to say about something like this and how does he do it in a way that both um speaks to you know what a black audience what a mainstream audience wants to hear but also you do have to at least consider trying to avoid inflaming the situation so there was always sort of a delicate tightrope for him to walk sadly if a president spoke about every shooting in america or even every mass shooting in america there are several every day um if you look at the strict guidelines for it um the president would never stop speaking so where is the bar that the white house places on when it's time to talk and when you just have to go on sadly with your daily life in the white house yeah i remember i don't remember which one it was but there was one day he spoke after mass shooting and another one happened right afterwards so that would become the entire job there you know in terms of a bar there was no hard and fast rule we didn't write anything down Mm -hmm. saying that something rises to it you just sort of you just sort of know it when you see it. Um, and that's not to minimize the ones he didn't speak after, but there there are some that just rise to a new level of horror, whether it was, you know, in Tucson, a sitting congresswoman was shot. In Newtown, 20 little kids are murdered in their classroom. Um, Charleston, obviously, shootings on military bases. Um, you know, Dallas later in 2016. There, there are just ones that, that you know the president's going to have to speak afterward. It's... Hard to believe, you know, I I can't believe it's been seven years. I feel like President Obama just left office and we're now two presidents, you know, down the line from him. Um, Remind us, how was the administration going on June 17, 2015? What was it like um, working at that point? What was the White House focused on? And had the president kind of done what many presidents do, which is grow into the job after what at that point was six years on the job. Yeah. By that point, you know, we certainly felt like we had a wind in our sails, which had been a long time coming. Um, You know, he walked into office with the economy on fire and that took the first term to, to put out. And even, you know, it's pretty rare that someone runs for reelection with unemployment up around 8%, I think, and, and still wins. But by then, you know, economic indicators were largely returning back to normal. Um, the Affordable Care Act was was really kind of getting more and more entrenched and covering more and more people. And he was working on, um, I don't think they were public in June 2015, a couple forward-facing initiatives. You know, Ben Rhodes was shuttling around trying to uh, broker a deal with Cuba um, to open up Cuba. You know, the president was, was putting pressure on China and India to come to the table for the Paris Agreement. Uh, people were working on the Iran nuclear deal, which I think we announced the very next week. So there were some big things happening behind the scenes in the White House that people didn't know about yet. And, um, you know, then this this week happens, and I'm sure we'll get to the Supreme Court decisions, but but yeah. sort of propelled things forward in a, in a really big way. The, um, the You left this 
towards the end of the book, if not the end of the book, I think, which is that President Trump had announced or then ordinary guy, President Trump had announced the day before that he was going to be running for president. And he had that scene with the escalator where he came down and there were people cheering him on, although I think there's some dispute about whether they were genuine supporters or paid actors. Um, uh, What was the president's reaction to president or then Donald Trump's announcement? And did it begin to insert itself into the daily discussion that you were having politically at the White House? If he had a reaction to the announcement, I don't I didn't know about it. Um, You know, I think it's safe to say that at the time, most people still treated him like a clown and a carnival barker who'd do anything for attention. But what what he was saying in his announcement speech was still dangerous. I mean, he those were the first um, kind of previews of the way he would seek to divide the country and um, punish, you know, more marginalized groups and, you know, kind of speak in in not so coded language to his base about how he's going to make sure this stays, you know, a a country the way that uh, people are nostalgic for, you know, where there was kind of a, a white Christian hierarchy and everybody else um, had to stay in their place. And, you know, I think it it would be a real stretch to say that the, the killing the next day was related to that. I mean, it it was pretty clear the, the shooter had been, canvassing this church and been thinking about these things for a long time. But, you know, one of the pernicious things about Donald Trump's rhetoric, both on the campaign trail and in office, is he created kind of a permission structure for um, people to engage in political violence, for, you know, some of the baser elements of society to, to crawl out from under these rocks. And, you know, it's probably just a weird coincidence that that he announced president for the day before. But uh, all the same, it, it's it's a part of those 10 days. I have uh, read many, many, uh, an embarrassing number of of memoirs from people's times working for presidents and first ladies and all the rest. Um, this is a marvelous book and there's marvelous detail in the book. And I really just enjoyed the front row seat that you gave to really just an incredible number of tidbits and scenes that I haven't seen in any other book about President Obama. And I think I've got eh, somewhere around maybe eight or eight or ten sitting there right now. Um, so it was a wonderful book. I'm curious, uh, did you? Uh, what were your sources for this? Did you rely on notes that you were taking in the moment, or did you have to go back and piece things together using either other memoirs and looking at YouTube videos, or did you have a running catag- you know, running list of what was happening? Yeah, uh, thank you for saying that, by the way. Um, we were told very early in the White House not to keep notes, not to keep a journal, because anything you create is now public property and therefore right. subpoenable. When I sat down to write the book, I really wished I'd ignored that advice and <laughs> kept detailed notes because it would have made my job a lot easier. But yeah, there was a lot of YouTube. Um, fortunately, all the president's speeches are available online. I could go back to those. And photos. I took a lot of photos in the White House and um, keep a, a meticulously organized photo library on my computer. So I could go back to certain days to see what I was wearing and what the president was wearing for details like that. Um, but beyond that, it's it's it was just kind of intense research, putting things together. I interviewed a lot of people. You did. And, you, yeah. People yep. you worked with. Do yep. you remember this moment? I do. And, and I, I helped I helped the president with the first volume of his memoirs. Again, he wrote those, um, not me, but I, I interviewed a lot of people for him for that. Uh-huh. And I would take advantage of that to say, you know what, you know, I'm going to write my own book after I leave here. So uh, I have a few questions for you. 
uh, and you even had it down to the granular detail of what it was like to meet people in the hallway and how you like raised your eyebrows at one another. I thought it was fascinating that your way to get into the Oval Office was just raising your eyebrows at one of the assistants at the door. Yeah, that I remember well. <laughs> yeah, I bet, right? Fair, I, I had to go up there too many times, but uh, Ferial, the president's assistant who sat closest to the Oval was, you know, she's just one of the world's greatest sweethearts. And so I'd, I just kind of stick my head through the door and raise my eyebrows at her to see if it was okay to go in. And she would either, she would either smile or she would shake her head. And that was just, that was our little shorthand. I thought it was fascinating that many people involved in the administration pledged to serve the full two terms. Uh, why was that a pledge that you made to yourself and to the president and to the country? And why did so many people keep that pledge? Yeah, it, it was never really a formal pledge. We didn't have to sign anything or put our hands up or <laughs> anything. But but a lot of us just wanted to. You know, the, the closest we came to a pledge was um, earlier in 2015, right before the events of the book, Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff, basically went around and told everybody, hey, listen, if you're thinking about going to get on another campaign or leaving, do it now. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll fill your spot with somebody who wants to finish the race with the rest of us. Otherwise stick around through the end. And that's really all I needed. I I'd always planned on, on staying through the end. And it's easier because I didn't have kids at the time, you know, (laughs) everything's easier before that. I can tell you that now (laughs) to have, to have children in the white house is, is a whole different level. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. In any house, (laughs) um, uh, how did you create distance, um, from, the topic at hand and your writing um, because there is the, the appropriate amount of distance there, the kind of 30,000 foot level. Um, it's a skill that I have to work at as a reporter and as a journalist every day to make sure that I'm seeing things, um, taking my own emotion out of it. How mm-hmm. did you practice that and make sure that you were able to distance yourself from the material to write a fair and honest and also you know, sober book? Fortunately, I had the benefit of time. Um, you know, it's been seven years since those events, and that wasn't entirely intentional on my part. I, I stayed with President Obama for four years after the White House, and it just didn't feel right to me to write a book that's largely about him while, you know, he was paying me out of his pocket. Um, so I left his office early in 2021 and uh, then sat down to write a book proposal. But, um, you know, what really helped crystallize those 10 days for me you know when, and when you're living through them you don't think of them that way you're not like all right this is day four of ten you know because you have no idea you have no idea right. how many what, days it's going to be yeah you have no idea what the rest of the week is going to bring but but it really crystallized that period of time for me um what crystallized that period of time for me was the trump years because we were living through you know basically the the mirror image just the, just the upside down and um suddenly i realized that there was a story there what was American politics like before he announced he was running for president? This is kind of an aside, but it occurs to me now that it's almost impossible to remember what that was like. You know, it was still combative. It was still polarized, but it was, it was also, there was a, the way I describe it is, is one of the biggest problems in politics these days is, is the lack of a sense of shame. You know, just a, a general sense of shame used to keep people, sort of on the straight and narrow. Um, There are more politicians now who have no shame whatsoever and will say or do anything regardless of the cost or the consequences. I I think that's something that's changed. He didn't start it. You know, he's just a symptom of it. Um, But that's, that's one of the biggest changes. 
Was it difficult for you to adjust to writing for the printed word for the eye as opposed to the spoken word? It was. And one thing I learned when I went in to record my audiobook is I tend to write really long sentences. And then when you have to read those out loud, oh no. Um, <laughs> I know the that's, feeling. Yeah, that's one of the things about speech writing, though. The, the, the first time the president kind of snapped at me for giving him a sentence that was way too long was when I realized uh, never to do that again. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it, right? Um, so what else was happening in those 10 days? Let's get into the nitty gritty of these 10 days. Um, it, just to give us some background, you know, the the, the the Amazing Grace speech and the events in South Carolina are the main thread of this book. But there is a motif of of focusing on the health care ruling and also on the gay marriage rulings, which, you know, as we know from watching the most recent term of the Supreme Court, all eyes are on when those decisions are being released, and especially in your case in the White House in 2015. Mm-hmm. And, and those were the only events that we knew were coming. We didn't know any of the rest of the week was was coming. But so we knew the Supreme Court, you know what cases it's looking at. You don't know when it's going to rule or how. Uh, but we knew that Obamacare was on the docket for the second time and marriage equality was on the docket. And these are two big legacy issues, you know, for the country, less so for Obama. We all knew that the press would cover him as whatever happened as a win or a loss for Obama. But that's that's never how we saw things. I mean, the way we looked at it was if 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 people struck down, if the court struck down Obamacare, millions of people would lose their health insurance right away. If the court did not find a right to marriage equality, millions of Americans would be basically deemed second class citizens and told, you know, your love isn't valid like the rest of ours is. Um, and that's constantly in your mind. So, you know, my team and I had to, and I had a great team of speechwriters. We had to set out to write different remarks for basically every outcome. You know, what if the court struck down Obamacare? What if the court didn't find a right to marriage equality? Those were really depressing speeches to write. Because um, you had and to be I ready. You, to, couldn't, you didn't get a chance to even write. I think you couldn't even bring yourself to write everything, right? We did. Um, it, you know, it was it was a real drag. I, I don't think we had it. We didn't have it super polished. I would, it would have needed another, you know, kind of coat of varnish that morning. Um, but the president never read them. That was... Uh. That was his thing. He would not read the ones uh, in case of emergency. Uh, so we had to prepare all those and have them ready because you didn't know what day these decisions would come down and you don't want to keep the press corps waiting. And then, you know, then the shooting happens and kind of upends everything. Um, one of the pivotal moments of the week had nothing to do with us. It was the families down in Charleston, the families of the victims, two days after the shooting, went into court to face the killer over video. He was in a holding cell and one by one, they all forgave him. Uh, I couldn't believe that. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't believe it either. Yeah. I was, a, I was flabbergasted because it's just, I couldn't do that. You know, it, how, uh, and you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know at the time that, you know, that's really grace and forgiveness or tenets of the AME church. And just look, I was raised Episcopalian. We all know, um, you know, forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us, but, you don't you don't think about it in terms of murder. Um, so that's just this extraordinary thing that happens that I know the president saw too. He was he was in California over that weekend. But that's really what changed the week for us because he didn't want to give a eulogy. He didn't want to go speak in Charleston. And uh come Monday, which you know, obviously we didn't know is is day six, but the sixth day, he um said, Look, I, I still don't want to go speak. But I do want to go be there for those families and hug those families. Um, and he ultimately said, if, if, we, if I do have to give a eulogy, then that's what I want to talk about, the concept of grace. 
A Little Bit De Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit De Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, You then take some swings at it a lot of swings at it and it, it's really a lot of um it was it was interesting to read not only how much care you put into it but how much you sort of battled yourself as you tried to write this speech so if you can just for our listeners explain how you picked up your baseball bat and and tried to hit this pitch coming over the plate and why it was so difficult for you to do so early on you know, whenever there's a speech, I'm nervous about. Um, and I was nervous about most speeches that dealt with race. I would try to talk to the president on the front end and, and get as much out of him as I could. And he just wasn't very forthcoming on this one. And I don't blame him. You know, we'd, we'd, we'd written a ton of eulogies. Um, and this one hit home in a, in a way that I couldn't really imagine. I always say that that one of the most important things about speech writing is having a sense of empathy, being able to you know, put yourself in your audience's shoes and walk around for a while. And even then that doesn't mean you're right. You know, that doesn't mean you can actually fully understand your audience and what they've been through. And, you know, I, I, I was aware that, that growing up a, a white kid on the North side of Chicago, I didn't have to endure, you know, what a black man in society had to endure, what a black woman in society had to endure. So I would, I would often defer to him or at least, you know, press him really hard on those issues before I sit down to write about it. Um, cause again, you want to get him that first great draft before, before he has to take the pen to it. And this was a speech, you know, it's about racism and the Confederate flag and guns. And there's all these kind of third rails in it that just, they can, they can overwhelm you when you're sitting at the computer trying to figure out what to say to all these different audiences. How did you have to, how did you marry the content with the specific voice and cadence that, pre that president Obama has how important is it for a speechwriter to remember who you're writing for? Very, and that part was always easy. You know, his his voice and cadence I could get down in in any speech. Um, it takes a while to to learn, but but by then I'd been writing for him for eight years, and I could do that. And I, it, it's helpful that it's his voice because it's not me, Cody, trying to talk about race. It's it's me doing it through him, um, or rather, just him doing it. But still. You know, there there are there are levels that I couldn't reach. There are there are boundaries to empathy. So I gave it my damnedest. This was this was probably the speech that I drafted that he um, reworked the most. And he just when I gave him a draft, he he just drew one giant line through pages three and four. I was just going to ask about that. <laughs> oh man, it was you know when I when I was <clears throat> when I was when I was just starting out for him as a speechwriter to see his edits on the page was just really a gut punch. You felt like you'd failed, you'd done something wrong. You know, it's almost like a teacher, but you come to realize it's the opposite. That means you gave him something he could work with and he's taking it better to a better place. And that's, that's really when our collaboration was at its best. But, but so what was his skill? Um, what 
in when you boil it down, I mean, it was almost like when I was reading you describe these edits that he was making, it was as if he was like a photographic, you talk about a photographic memory. It was like he was a photographic writer. He could just look at something and understand that this not, it was okay, but not quite there. But what is that skill when you try to put your arms around what that skill is um, and how it's developed? What exactly was he good at? That's exactly right. He was good at structure and logic um, to the point where he could look at a speech you'd give him, see it as a as a whole, almost as a piece of sheet music, and go in and insert, um, you know, new lyrics or a bridge, or you know, in in my case on the Charleston speech, an entire new entirely new back half. Um, he just had that skill to see the entire speech as one coherent story, and if the story didn't make sense, he would hop in and make it make sense. So there there are are always critics of a president, no matter who the president is, from Joe Biden to Donald Trump to Barack Obama to Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, um, who say, well, of course he gave a good speech. He has great speech writers. But in this case, you're saying the speech giver was the the key person in the development process. One thing I think the, the book will make extremely clear is that we all thought that way that I constantly thought that I wasn't qualified to be there. We all had both a form of imposter syndrome, but also the knowledge that the president was most of the time a better speechwriter than us. Um, you know, and on policy speeches or a daily message speech, he might not do a lot of work on it, but when it really mattered for a speech like this, he would dive into it. He would call it the muse hitting, you know, the muse would hit and he'd start writing, but you know, I agonized over the speech for four days. I also pushed it to the side a lot to procrastinate by working on the healthcare and marriage equality speeches. Um, but he, I gave it to him, you know, at 5.30 on a Thursday and over four hours, he rewrote the back half. And it's just one of those things where you wonder, where does this come from? Um, and he said he was just, he was inspired. He was moved. He, you know, he, he took, I had the lyrics to Amazing Grace halfway through the speech. And not even the lyrics, just the phrase. And from then on, he cut it all out. And he used the lyrics to Amazing Grace to build the structure for the back half of the speech, to really build a new movement of music. And then when you watch him go into what it really amounts to a black church service on national television, you know, he preached. And then he he took the country to a higher place. Is there a specific back and forth you remember having with him that you want to recount here and say, hey, this is what I gave him. And this is what he gave back to me. And I just thought, wow, that was a great, great point that he made or a great way to say that. Yeah, for for the Charleston speech, it was the night before the speech. And and generally, for a speech that we knew the, the country and, and parts of the world would be watching, I'd try to get him something maybe three days out just to give him time. Um, but sometimes being jammed on a speech, sometimes having a quick deadline actually removes thinking from the equation. And you just write and you just feel it. And so I think that's what he did that night. And he called me back to the White House around 10 p.m. Um, so I went in. I was so nervous as you were on your way in the book. I was like, oh, God, this would be a long way to get there. I'll tell you. Yeah. I don't want to give too much away. No, no, he, no, no. Uh, yeah. He brought me back in there into the into the residence. Um, and he was dressed casually and sat me down and walked me through what he did. And, uh, you know, then we had a nice moment that I that I needed as as somebody who in that moment, I felt pretty worthless, like I'd let him down in a profound way. Um, but he he has an extraordinary way of he's not one. He doesn't dispense compliments freely. 
you know, it's very rare. He would, I think he only told me he was proud of me twice ever. And, it, you know, I think the highest compliment you could get on a speech was, I think that was pretty good. Um, I could hear him say that. But that night when I needed it most, he was, he was there with something that uh, I just, I needed to hear. Uh, so um, as you draft the speech and as you get closer and closer to the day of the eulogy, how were you taking the facts on the ground? Because one of the things um, is that the speech is filled with wonderful anecdotes about many of the victims. Um, and you really get a sense of who those people are. So how were you taking the real world events that were coming in from news reports and and infusing them into this document? It's such a terrible fact of life. But by that point, our assistant, we'd given our assistant basically a template a research template after a mass shooting for for things we wanted to know about people's lives. Just the fact that you have to say that out loud, that that's a real thing you had to do is absurd. Um, but she would, it shouldn't be part of her job description, but she would kind of snap into action after a mass shooting and start finding wonderful little vignettes for us. Because, you know, the first part of eulogy, you want to remind people who these people were. Uh, and then in the second half, you want to tell people what are our obligations and responsibilities now that these people are gone. Um, but she, you know, the the, the Tucson new, uh, eulogy in particular, we had all these great little vignettes about people up front um, that the, ideally you, you, you when you do this, you want people to say, I wish I knew that person. How did he become the victims in a way that no other president could? Well, the obvious answer for Charleston is that he was black um, and he he understood, you know, hatred. Um, but he, you know, he he had an incredible sense of empathy. Everybody always talks about Bill Clinton saying, I feel your pain. But he Obama had a way of, of showing it through not just words, but actions. He he was the only person in America who basically hugged the families of every single victim in every single mass shooting. Um, you know, in Newtown, I was with him when he spent three hours before the speech going from classroom to classroom meeting with each family. He sat and played with a bunch of little kids who were all, I mean, little, little kids, two, three, four, who were dressed up in dresses and little suits who were too young to understand where their brother and sister had gone. He does all that for three hours and then goes and collects himself in, in the bathroom of a high school. And this was this was the first time I'd ever seen a Secret Service agent cry and goes out and, and manages to give a eulogy on national television anyway. He was really good at compartmentalizing, um, but giving his whole self to everything that he did. There was that one time where he couldn't compartmentalize a couple times, probably during Newtown. What was it like to see him cry for all your staff members? no one's ever asked me that before it's i you know the first word i thought of was it was a relief to see that he was going through what we were you know everybody expects the president to stand up and be tough but i i, I prefer it when i know that you know the president of the united states is a human being and i remember john favreau and i took him a draft statement that morning and he crossed out one paragraph and just said it would be it's too raw i wouldn't be able to get through that yeah. And even without that, he's he stood up at that podium and, you know, cried in front of the press corps. And the reason I think it resonated with so many people, well, the, the proof of it is on on the White House YouTube channel. That was the second most watched video for years after after the night uh, of the bin Laden raid. 
you know, I think people went just to see him feel what they did. And, you know, again, I wasn't a parent at the time I am now, but, but I'm sure that hit parents in a much more profound way, the Newtown shooting, I mean, than the rest of us. And, uh, I think for parents to see him going through that, you, you can, you can be, you can be a tough guy and a resolute guy and shed a tear every once in a while when it's, when it's warranted. I'm I'm crying just I, I, I'm actually tearing up thinking about Newtown right now. Um, uh, one of the theories you talk about in the book is that it's the job not only of a speechwriter to find the words, but to find the silences. Why did that become a mantra that your speechwriting team um, used throughout his presidency, but particularly for this speech? It's it's something I, that had never occurred to me. And when you're a speechwriter, you're trying to, well, maybe I shouldn't speak for all speechwriters, but I would constantly try to cram everything into a speech. And I, I knew how to, I, I could build a pretty good crowd-pleasing moment or a quiet moment to to almost you know bring people to tears. But for a big policy speech like the State of the Union Address, you just try to cram everything in there and yeah. pack it in. And early in 2015, I took him, a draft of the State of the Union address uh, eight days early, which was a new record for us. And he said, you know, everything's in here. Um, every sentence says something. Every word means something. And I was like, that's great, man. That's that's what a State of the Union address is supposed to do. And he goes, no, 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 no. I need, I need some quiet moments. You know, I don't want everything at a 10. I need some sevens. I need some fours. Um, and I wasn't really picking up what he was putting down because I hadn't been sleeping before getting him that draft. Obviously now I get it, but... He, he looks at me and goes, and he's eating lunch too. So he's putting chicken in his mouth and he goes, are you ever, you listen to Miles Davis? And I'm just like, what is he talking about? And he walked me through the notes you don't play. Um, you know, and he said, that's what made Miles Davis so good. I need some quiet moments. I need some silences. So go home tonight. Don't do any work on the speech. I want you to go home tonight and pour a drink and listen to Miles Davis and then come back in here tomorrow and find me some silences. And uh, it makes perfect sense. It's one of those things where in retrospect, you're like, idiot. Why did I, why did I give him a draft <laughs> like that? Um, but it's actually, I, I kind of turned it into, um, advice for my entire life, which is not how he meant it, but, you know, especially having a, a daughter now, you, your calendars get so full and I actually try to find the silences by cramming them in there. Um, I'm not going to check my phone right now. I'm going to take her to the playground. You know, I'm going to, I'm not going to, um, do that meeting right now. I'm going to skip it. Mm. and go hang out with my kid you know and it's just kind of so it's it's not what he meant but i i i'm kind of on a constant search to find the silences that's good advice i'm going to think about that particularly with the phone sometimes it's just time to put the damn thing down um what was it like to finally be done with the speech and see the president off in his motorcade with the you know military tactical team around him and him, him and the beast and everything and he goes on his way to deliver this speech um, how, well, how were you doing at that moment? What is it like to just send him off and go, well, I've, I've given him what I can give him. It's now in the teleprompter and now it's up to him to deliver it. Uh, is that loss of control? Um, how do you handle that loss of control? That loss of control was bliss every time because you, you've <laughs> not my problem. Yeah. You died. Your problem, Mr. President. We would twist ourselves into knots of, you know, self-loathing for days, trying to get a speech just right. And in this case, I I pulled two all-nighters that week and, and, you know, we'd already been through the, 
the euphoria of Obamacare being upheld the day before, and then the, just the outright joy of marriage equality that morning. And you're still mindful that you have to go travel to give a eulogy that afternoon after a racist slaughter. So you're, you're balancing all these competing emotions with just this ultimate relief that the speech is no longer in your hands. You know, you do not have to deal with the fact checkers anymore. You do not have to deal with the teleprompter operator. It's just gone. And normally I would, I, I traveled with the president to Charleston and normally I would be in that motorcade, either pecking in edits or just going to watch the speech. But he had done another editing pass on the flight and I did not want to take the risk of, you know, we had little, this is 2015. So there's little wireless cards that go into the laptops. And I just didn't want to take the risk that I wouldn't be able to get a signal that he'd be waiting to go out yeah. on stage and, you know, why the hell isn't the printer and the teleprompter or the speech into the printer and then the teleprompter. So I stayed on the plane, um, which ended up being great. I was able to just kick back and watch on TV with everybody else. And, you know, it was a Friday afternoon and my work was done, done, done. Lots of work that week. So the the flight attendant came around and you know she said, you want a beer? And I said, you know what? I, I do. I do. I really do. So I, I got to drink a beer and watch him give that speech and sing to everybody. Uh, how, how were you doing? Um, well, what are you looking for as a speech is going on? Um, not just for this speech. I mean, this one's a little different because it's such a somber eulogy, but what is a speech writer watching for as the speech is being given and, and the audience is reacting to it? I look for heads nodding. You know, there's, there's all sorts of data you can get. There's focus groups, there's polling, but I look for heads nodding. Um, and you know that most audiences that go see a presidential speech are already supporters of the president. It's pretty rare that you get, you know, um, opponents in there or people who genuinely don't have their minds made up. And you know, you know, when he's basically going into a black church service, how they're going to react. But I still look for heads nodding because it means your words are connecting. It means they're paying attention. That was my biggest metric. Uh, he, oh, he, he, well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please. Oh, no. So he um, had not. Uh, even though it became one of the signature moments of his whole presidency, he had not decided that he was going to sing until I think he was standing there essentially. Right. Um, you know, what do you know about that without giving too, too much away? What do you know about that decision that he made on the fly to start singing amazing grace? And I think take a break for about 12, 13 seconds while he gathered himself. Yeah. He took, he took that long, long, deep breath and I knew he was going to sing. Um, there was probably a hot second out of those 11 seconds where I thought, I don't know, is he having second thoughts? But it turns out I asked him afterwards and he was just, he was gathering himself. He said, you know what the thing about Amazing Grace is? I said, no. And this is the way you ask questions. You know, you know the thing about Miles Davis, you know the thing about Amazing Grace. <laughs> right. And he said, you got to start low. Otherwise, when you get to a wretch like me, your voice cracks. Uh, and so that's what he was doing up there on stage. But I think he was also feeling, you know, the the weight of the, actually the opposite of, of weight, the lightness of the moment. You're, you're there for this awful, awful reason. But there was also this incredible burst of progress in American history that morning with marriage equality. And you, you've got the spirit in the room with you. And, you know, it, it compelled them to take that leap of faith. But, you know, we're always mindful that it's we don't sit down thinking this speech is going to end racism or end mass shootings. You know, um, we're not stupid or that naive. Even though I do remember a reporter that week I was asking, just going to ask, yeah, a reporter yeah. literally said, "Is is racism the next thing on his list of things to solve?" Yeah, I think the exact question was, "Because can the president cure race?" Um, <laughs> no, is the answer. <laughs> no, right? Yeah. Next question. <laughs> yeah, but you know, we we still approached speeches um, 
as if we could. We knew we couldn't, but we still approach speeches as if we could change people's minds and could maybe change the country's nature because why bother otherwise? Yeah. Um, the Even after he sang, I thought there was another signature moment and there was only about 15 seconds or 20 seconds after Amazing Grace had finished um, and was accompanied, by the way, with that beautiful um, music that was played at the church and it really, and everyone was standing. It was really a marvelous, marvelous moment. Um, but there's a, another moment where he says, um, the United States of America, and he emphasizes the word united. Um, how important is it to have a president um, understand, as he put it in 2004, there aren't red states and blue states, there are just states? I think it's really important. And it, it's it's true, you know, Every, we're all, which I, I realize what I just said sounds unbearably naive, but but states are purple, you know, within states people are of all sorts of different backgrounds. So it's, it's important that you have a president who knows it. I always groan really hard when, you know, someone will say, did the president fail to unite the country? I mean, what a, what a childish question to ask. What a childish thing to expect of our leaders. You know, did, did Joe Biden fail in his promise to unify America? I mean, America's never been unified. It doesn't mean everyone's suddenly going to think and believe the same thing and 100% of people are going to vote the same way. Like, that's just not what this country is or should be. Um, but you still want somebody who's going to give it their best, not even their best to unify the entire country, but to at least tell people that we have, remind people that we have a common story, that there are common values and ideals and aspirations that bind this country together. We're not... We are not founded on one particular race or religion or creed. We're this wonderful melting pot. And what makes America great is that America, the, the instruction manual we've been given, you know, kind of gives us this directive and this toolbox to change, hopefully for the better. What did he say after the speech? He was he, he was in good spirits, um, you know, mindful of why he was there. And, and again, he met with all the families of the victims before and after the speech, but he was in, you know, the, the country had, had come a long way in just a couple of days. And again, those, you know, it sounds like just a couple of days. That's why I wrote into his, his marriage quality speech that morning that, you know, this was the work of decades, you know, progress in this country comes through persistent effort over decades by committed citizens. But some days there are days, sometimes there are days like this when justice comes down like a thunderbolt. And so he was, he was, he was a little tired, but he was, kind of filled with the spirit um, as he might be. And, and he was relieved that the speech was behind him. I thought it was so funny. The 10 days after you wrote this speech and um, or helped write this speech and the 10 days ends with you sleeping right through a giant party. Uh, what was the mood like when you got back to the white house and why did you just say, I can't do it guys. You go out, I've gone on, go on without me. Yeah, I mean, people in, in my generation and certainly in the White House um, were still euphoric over the marriage equality decision. You know, we had friends on staff who proposed to their their partners that night because they suddenly could. Um, and so everyone was at the White House, which was which was slowly as the sun went down, lighting up in all the colors of the rainbow. And my wife and a bunch of her college buddies, she went to American University and they were all still in Washington, all wanted to go down and celebrate and i just i said i just can't do it i'm i can't possibly stay awake any longer and i think i was out cold by 9 30 and straight through until the next morning but but that's okay i i got to live through um enough extraordinary moments and memories over those eight years that 
that to let other people have um, their moment in the sun was all right with me. Are you comfortable placing this speech in the rankings of other great speeches in American history? I guess it's a way of asking where does this rank with the second inaugural and ask not and FDR and all that. You can do that. I'll never play that game. I'll never play that game. <laughs> um, uh, favorite souvenir from the White House. Is it a memory or is there something that you brought with you from your time there? There are two. Um, our On our wedding day, the president invited my wife and I and our, our wedding party and our families to the White House. We got to spend some time with him and in the Rose Garden. And he That's a good one. Dispense some advice. We have a great we have a great Pete Souza photo of everybody all together um, on the colonnade uh, or in the steps heading up to the Oval Office. And the second is uh, when the world champion Chicago Cubs came to the White House, they brought me a jersey that said Keenan 44 and they all signed it. And I've got that framed and hanging over my desk. That's that is a good one. Both of those are are, are very, very good. Um, the cover is like the ultimate. Um, I love the fact that it's it's Lincoln and I'm showing it to him over our Zoom call. It's Lincoln. And it's President Obama, and then the back, and then the back of your head. Uh, this had to have been when you saw this. This has got to be the cover of my book, right? Yeah, there was no question. Pizzas <laughs> is a genius. Pizzas is a genius. Um, and that's that's the way I like to think about our relationship too. The president and I, you know, I mean, obviously we live in times where everybody knows everything about everybody else, but it, hypothetically, a speechwriter should not be seen or heard. So for for the cover of the book, just to feature the back of my head, looking down and writing is is kind of the way I'd like to be remembered. Uh, I will tell you that I remember, I'm going to remember you for, for, for a couple of reasons, but one of them is the way you named your daughter and the way you disclosed it at the end, Grace. Yeah, she, uh, the, the, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing with the book and Gracie because they were both, they were both being hatched at the same time, but they're both named after the concept. You know, um, it was it was 2020. My wife and I moved to New York just two months before the pandemic hit, obviously not knowing it was coming. And we found out she was pregnant two weeks before everything shut down. So it was a stressful year. Uh, you had all sorts of unrest. And then, and then Gracie was born like right in the midst of the um, quote unquote disputed election. And, you know, she'd been comparatively uh, remarkably uh, complication-free pregnancy, and it just felt like grace we didn't deserve. So that was her name. Uh, how have you used the lesson that you and President Obama wrote to take grace with you and go about your daily life, not just in naming your daughter, but in how you go out into society every day? Yeah, it's, it's you know, when when Gracie is drawing on something with crayons that she shouldn't be, um, I practice grace and uh, she can do no wrong. And, um, you know, in, in my dealings with people, I think probably the best, the best way that I would employ it is, is he always said, you don't know what people are going through. So cut him some slack. Some of the best advice he ever gave me was don't impugn motives to don't assign motives to people. Um, and I thought that was kind of quietly profound. You know, you don't know why people are doing what they're doing. Uh, so, so just try to give people the benefit of the doubt when it's warranted. And the, uh, nine victims that day, we should say a word about their, their memory. Um, how do we make sure that we never forget what happened? That's a real challenge. I mean, that's the work of democracy. Uh, it, obviously, uh, a eulogy, like I said, isn't going to stop all mass shootings, but boy, at some point we need to care enough to do something about it. 
um, and just try to prevent one or two, you know, if, if that killer hadn't been able to get a gun, those, those people might still be alive. Uh, tell us about your work right now. Uh, you're, you're working as a professor and also at Fenway strategies. Just tell us about what you're up to these days. I teach speech writing at Northwestern university, my alma mater. So I'm, I'm kind of training the next generation of speech writers and letting them loose on the world. And, uh, nothing makes me happier than one of them gets a speech writing job somewhere. It just makes me so happy to, it's my proof that it works. Um, and I am at a partner at Fenway strategies. We're a speech writing firm, um, about, I think most of us wrote in the Obama administration. So I basically just get to hang out and hang out and write speeches with my friends all day. Like people who contract for you and say, Hey, I got to write a speech on, is it public policy or is it eulogies or what is it? All kinds, but we're, we're very, we're very choosy with our clients. Our clients have to be making a positive impact on the world. I like that. That, That's a great standard to have. We should all deal with people who only are making positive impacts. I love it. Um, Cody Keenan, the author of Grace, President Obama, and 10 Days in the Battle for America. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Evan. Check out the book. Check out his website, CodyKeenan.com. He's on Twitter, at Cody Keenan. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to Patreon.com slash History. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity that promotes children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks. <laughs>